whenever uh, a nation is formed, people find it both necessary and helpful to put together founding documents to help guide its citizens. Uh, as Americans, we have our Declaration of Independence. Hopefully you're familiar with it. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and so it continues. You know, we have our Constitution and, and Bill of Rights. Every nation, including ours, have documents that help to provide a common understanding and values of a people. In the kingdom of God, we talked about this last week, the kingdom of God is no different. In fact, I'd say this, the reason other earthly kingdoms have founding documents is because God gave them that inclination, following his example. I really believe that. If you've made a decision to enter the kingdom of God through Jesus, the Messiah, then you have a king. You live in a kingdom. And God's word is our guide. But maybe you're here today and you're not sure what to think about the Bible. You know, is it, is it really God's word? Is it reliable? Or is it an outdated document that has no relevance for life today? Should it be changed from culture to culture that everybody adapts it on their own? I mean, so some people have said, what right do people from thousands of years ago have to tell us how we should live our lives? And all of these, I would say, they're actually valid questions as, as we consider the Bible as we look at Scripture so what I want to do today as we continue our Better Together series is talk about what the Bible is, determine whether or not, basically, how do we know it's reliable? I want to talk about that, and, and then I want us to unpack what Jesus thinks about Scripture, because this series is all about Jesus and. So I guess where we're at. If you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you've got God's Word. We say that because we want you daily in God's Word. I hope that you're in God's Word more than just on a Sunday morning. Uh, we usually, we used to have Bibles underneath the chairs because we want people to have access to God's word. We don't have those today. Uh, but I would say this, if you don't have access to God's word, please come find me after. Uh, I'd love to get you a copy because we want you daily in God's word. And uh, so we're going to take a look at God's word in Matthew chapter five. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Uh, we stand because we want to highlight differently than what I'm going to share. These are God's direct words to us. You know, I, I've made the comment before that sometimes people will say, well, I, if God just spoke to me, I would do it. So you have these red letter editions of your Bible, Jesus speaking. So God's going to speak to you today, and I hope you do it. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're taking a look at verses 17, 17 through 20 this morning. And here's what Jesus has to say again under the heading of Jesus and Scripture. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd of thousands. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. 
So last week we kicked off our Better Together series with a message about the good news of the kingdom. And so we unpack this verse from the New Testament book of Mark where Jesus proclaims, the time is fulfilled. So here's the summary of the ministry of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you want to know the ministry of Jesus, you need to know that sentence. And I would say this, if you missed last week's message, please, please, please go back and, and look at that at connectionpointchurch.org. We always catalog our messages. It is vital as we move through the series, you've got to understand kingdom of God. You've got to understand scripture. And next week we'll talk about missions. You understand those three things, everything else will make a lot of sense. And so I really encourage, and I actually would say this, even if you were here and you listened to that message, it would be worth your time to go back and listen again. There's a lot in there. It was the most concise, you know, 65 minutes, concise, concise, but yet comprehensive message I could give on the kingdom of God. Longest message I've ever preached in my life. So yeah, I'm glad you're excited about that. We've got one. So I, I manuscript my messages mostly to just help me process. It's, it's a process for me. And, and so I'll work through and it just helps me work through everything the Lord's working in my heart. And, and so usually I print those out and it's like 12 pages, single, single pages. And so I give those to, to, as they kind of go through slides. And last week, 25 pages. I couldn't even staple it. I tried three times, wouldn't go through. I just handed the stack of papers. I'm like, here you go. We're all in today, you know? But still, I encourage you. Please go back and listen to that. It really is foundational. If you, so I'll say this, and I said it last week, you cannot understand Jesus unless you understand the kingdom of God. And if you do not understand Jesus, you cannot understand Christianity. And if you do not understand Christianity, then you kind of miss the free gift of eternal life that we're given. So really, it's important. Please go back and listen to those. It's, it's foundational for what we're getting into this year. This is our starting point. So the kingdom has come. So here's what's more. The good news is this. The kingdom has come. The enemy's been defeated. Victory's already been had. We're simply in the mop-up operation. And Jesus is going to come in again and seal that which has already been done. He'll set all things right. So the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom will come. That was the good news we shared last week, that we are a people who have a king and a kingdom. And today what we want to do is look at our founding document, the Bible. But that's the, the question we first need to answer is this. What is the Bible, right? We should probably start there. And so before we get into what Jesus thinks about scripture, it's important for us to understand what the Bible is. And so to help us with that, if you don't know this incredible resource, bibleproject.com, they put together great content and information and explain things in wonderful ways. So I actually just want us to start with that. So we're going to listen to their video on what is the Bible, and then we'll jump into the rest. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And 
These prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand-year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature. So what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years. And from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. 
Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. So that's the first, and what you saw was a series of how to read the Bible. So we just kind of cut it off there, because it gives you a good understanding of what the Bible is and kind of how it arrived at the shape that we have it today, because that's our starting point. You need to understand what the Bible is, and it's this the uniting story that God gives us to be able to understand the story that we're invited to live in. And I would say this, if you want to understand more about the Bible or how to read the Bible specifically, just go to BibleProject.com and walk through that series on how to read the Bible. It's incredible information. So with an understanding of what the Bible is, for us to have a desire to follow what Scripture has to say, I think we need to be certain that the Bible's reliable. It's a good starting point. And so that's a question. Is Scripture reliable? Hasn't the Bible been changed? And these are important questions. Before we consider what Jesus thinks about Scripture, you know, didn't different groups of people come along and, and in the margins of the text cross things out and insert their own ideas and somehow try to influence the message? of the scriptures. These are questions that I get. You know, are these documents actually reliable? And I think one of the most important things to grasp when we are talking about this, particularly in reference to the New Testament, is the vast number of documents that we're dealing with. So I want to look at this a couple different ways. So I want to share a picture I took. So our family went to the Creation Museum in June, and and so they have this display that shows us it's a great visual of just the sheer number of documents we have today to back up the text of the New Testament. So as you can see, we have well over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's a lot. And when you add to that, we've got 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 early other portions of the New Testament. So we literally have thousands of pieces of manuscript that are early copies of the New Testament. And from the picture, you can see that there are no other documents from antiquity that even come close to this, just in sheer number of manuscripts available. The book that comes closest is Homer's Iliad, which has less than 1,800 copies available, whereas we have near 24,000 manuscripts available from the New Testament. That's a lot. So we can validate the scripture as true. Uh, But what else? When compared to other ancient manuscripts, the New Testament was written within decades of when things occurred. And here's why this matters, because if things are written down long after they've occurred, then there's greater room for error. But if things are written down within the lifespan of those who witnessed what happened, then those individuals could correct something if it was wrong. And so the time gap that we have when things were written down to the earliest manuscript that we have is 40 years. That's a really small gap. I mean, really small. I mean, you look at that in comparison to other examples. So the Iliad, originally written in 800 BC with the earliest manuscript from 400 BC. So there's a 400-year time gap. In the earliest complete text that we have of the Iliad, it dates to the 13th century. That's a huge time lag. A natural history by Pliny the Elder, originally written within the 1st century, earliest manuscript to the 5th century. So these other ancient texts... The the New Testament is incredible in terms of the the validity of those documents. Uh, One scholar, John Warwick Montgomery, here's what he says. To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents, no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as New Testament. There's none, not even come close. So then what about the Old Testament? You know, when it comes to the Old Testament, we don't have the same abundance of close manuscripts. 
In fact, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest complete Hebrew text we had dated to 900 AD, which was a time lag of 1,300 years from the time it was completed to the manuscript that we had. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this all changed. That's why they, they call the Dead Sea Scroll discovery one of the greatest discoveries of our time. Because now we have manuscripts that date near the completion of the Old Testament. And here's what I love. What the scholars found as they looked at the texts between what we had and then what they discovered, there was very little variance. Very little. And why? Because God preserves his word. And really, but that's part of the question too. Is it really God's word? I really hold true that God preserves his word, but, but is it his word? Is it? Or is it just some reliable ancient text? How do we know the Bible in its totality is God speaking? First of all, I'd say the Bible is no ordinary book. No ordinary book. It uses the phrase, the word of God. So of itself, it testifies unto itself, the word 394 times in the Old Testament. Although written by 40 authors over the course of 1,200 years, think about this. This extraordinary book shows a single theme, God's will and plan for humanity. Okay, who could do that but God? The Bible describes itself this way. All scripture is God-breathed. So that's what we call God's word and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the Bible is the product of God himself. Most people recognize. So even if you're like, well, I mean, okay, so those are, those are some scholarly debates. But even just on the human rational side, most people recognize there are moral struggles we all live with and that we have to have some kind of absolute truth in some way, something beyond us that provides us with answers regarding right and wrong, something not based on human opinion, but divine character. There has to be something out there because you and I can't determine that for ourselves. Scripture is not mere human ideas, but God's divine character and his will revealed through human words. These writers of scriptures, they weren't just writing machines. You know, God didn't punch them like keys on a typewriter to produce his message. Each writer has their own unique style. God worked through each human personality so that the authors wrote what God wanted them to. Uh, I know sometimes people have trouble with some of what's written in the Old Testament. I've, I've talked with people about that. You know, what about men having multiple wives? What about murder? We see those things. But what I have found is these questions come up because people, they're trying to read a narrative like you would an epistle, but you can't do that. And I want to explain what I mean by that. So Paul, a New Testament follower of Jesus, he writes several letters to first century churches instructing them on how to live. You know, things like honor one another. You know, don't go on sinning, living like your former self. You know, those are real simple to follow. Uh, letters like uh, Philippians, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. So those are pretty straightforward. But you can't read Genesis like you would the letters to the Corinthian churches. You read in Genesis about these men of God who had multiple wives. So we got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what we do is we misread that narrative thinking these guys are serving as role models for us, people to follow. But can I tell you there was one who lived perfect? His name is Jesus. He's our role model. So you can't read into Genesis like you would some of those epistles. It's, it's not the same thing. I mean, just think about them having multiple wives. Did that go well for them? No. Look, I'll tell you right now, marriage, like one wife, it can be dreamy. I love my marriage. It is awesome. But I can tell you what, you put a couple of women in there, gone from dreamy to nightmare. Right? So you got to read the Bible through the right lens. It matters. It is important to understand how to read and interpret the Bible. 
as God intended us to do so. So again, I really would encourage you, if you're unfamiliar on how to read the Bible, go to thatbibleproject.com, a great series. It tells you and shows you how you can read God's word. But we need to be confident this morning. Here's the foundational truth. We have got to be confident that God preserves his word. He preserves his word. It's our guiding document as people with a king living in God's kingdom. Scripture guides us as citizens in God's kingdom. So with an understanding of what the Bible is and its reliability, let's turn our attention to what Jesus thinks about Scripture. And we find from our passage this morning that Jesus did not come to abolish Scripture. Jesus did not come to abolish Scripture. So Jesus is talking to this crowd, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's referring to what we now call the Old Testament. And Jesus says, do not think, because there was this ongoing accusation, as you read through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this this accusation that Jesus had set himself up against the written word of God. But he didn't. That was not the aim of Jesus. Quite the contrary. Far from wanting to set aside the law and the prophets, Jesus was bringing into being that to which they had pointed forward, to carry them into a new era of fulfillment. And that's why I love that video. It explains that. He was bringing it forward now. They were waiting for this leader to come, and he arrived. We talked about this last week. Old Testament scriptures, in particular the prophets, they pointed forward to a day, the day of the Lord, when this evil age would be coming to an end, and the new age would come. People were anticipating the time of God's rule, the day of the Lord. People have been waiting hundreds of years. This crazy guy, John the Baptizer, comes and says... We're at the brink. We're standing right here on the line. This age is closing and the new age is coming. Are you ready for it, he's saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. It's all about him. It's all about him. We find this. Jesus attests to this. In in Luke chapter 24, he's uh, been killed. He's resurrected from the dead. And and he encounters these two travelers on a road to Emmaus. They're they're talking about the events of what has happened, that Jesus has been crucified. And and they thought he was the one to come, the leader they've been waiting for. And, And so picking up from that passage, reading from verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near And went to them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, so Jesus now speaking, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. 
and beginning with Moses. Here's the verse. Beginning with Moses, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and all of the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Scripture is about Jesus. What was Jesus explaining? He was explaining the Messiah was coming, not as a vanquishing king, but as a suffering servant. He likely quoted from passages like I read last week, Isaiah 42 and 53, and and he's showing these travelers that the Messiah was not going to come with sword and power, but with love, grace, and forgiveness. These men on the road to Emmaus, they were right to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was the one to bring redemption. The kingdom of God was and is at hand. The time had come, and it's still here. That's why I love that we're living in today. It's simply that what they were getting is not what they were expecting. We covered this last week. Instead of triumphing over his enemies with power and might, Jesus triumphed over sin, death, and the devil with forgiveness and grace. It was a different way. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus. And I want to say it's going to be consummated with his second coming. Jesus will come back as a vanquishing king. So it's not that they were wrong. It's just that their timing was off. He first needed to come to do something else so that he could come and do the other later. But Jesus' first appearance was that of a suffering servant. That's why we call the second coming of Jesus our blessed hope. I was thinking, I was writing that down. Why do we pronounce, like the word blessed is blessed sometimes. Can we figure that out? Anyways, it's our blessed hope. So I don't know why we pronounce it that way, but that's what it is. That day, Jesus will set everything straight. That's why we long for that day. In the last six months, I will say this, it's likely you've discovered what your hope had been in. Have you found you might have had some misplaced hope? And I would say, if so, consider that a gift. A gift from the Lord. Because he does not want us to have misplaced hopes. He wants us to have our hope in the one thing that is sure. His name is Jesus the fulfillment of scripture. So next time you encounter a challenge, put your faith in the one who we know is sure. He's our savior. He secures our life. So Jesus did not come to abolish scripture. He came to fulfill it. And we also find from our passage that Jesus thought all of scripture is important. All of it. So Jesus tells the crowd, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I would say this, this is particularly challenging for us in the culture in which we live in today. In the network age, we've talked about that, where morality or values are determined by individual agendas or the networks that we're involved with, there comes this incredible pressure to relax some of the commands of Jesus so that we instead align ourselves with group agendas and purposes. We have this pressure. We know we do. Because to align ourselves with values outside of the groups or the networks that we're involved with, it puts us at risk of being canceled in the culture in which we live. Right? To live by an absolute truth, God's truth, is to risk being shamed by the networks or groups that we're involved with. We know it. And that's why sometimes we struggle with it. But I would say this. This is what makes following our Savior incredible. Because Jesus is king. He is our Lord and Savior and role model. He already models this for us. Here's what we find in Hebrews chapter 12. I love this verse. Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, 
He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. So you want to understand shame? Look at the life of Jesus. And here's what I love. So he disregarded the shame. He endured the cross. And what's the result? Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So the encouragement is this. This is a verse that follows. Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. So the writer of Hebrews knows. He knows the day that we're living in. He might have written that a couple of thousand years ago, but it doesn't matter. It applies to today. He knows that sometimes to follow what is absolute truth, you might be shamed by the culture you live in, but he says, don't worry about it. We've got an example of someone, and what happens is is you're then exalted. I, I would put this before you this morning. What's more real, the spiritual life that we're in or the material things around us? One is eternal. The other is temporary. And so part of what we have to do is reframe the life that we live is we've got to consider what really matters. Does shame in this life matter? Jesus shows it doesn't. In fact, he shows us if you endure that, the result is you're being exalted. You being exalted. In God's kingdom, the kingdom that lasts, that matters, it's eternal. We have a king. We live in a kingdom. I covered this last week, and now today I'm going to add, scripture is our authority. Another way to say that is, God's word is our guide. We have to work out of this from the right framework or we're going to miss it. So in this group that we're sitting in this morning, the people of God group, which is meant to influence all the other groups that we belong to, scripture is our good authority. So we've got this truth from God and and genuine disciples of Jesus, we take delight in and learn from every word that God has written rather than picking and choosing between them. We can't do that today. We can't pick and choose. If we live in God's kingdom, we cannot pick and choose among the commandments, but we've got to obey them all. Because that's where real freedom is found. And that was why Jesus came to set our hearts free. So as we study God's word together, it's important we comprehensively apply it to our lives. All of us. We can't be selective in the commands that we apply. So I would encourage you, find a command this week. Go through the New Testament. See one of the commands of Jesus. Read Matthews 5, 6, and 7. He's got a lot of good stuff in there. Find one that's a struggle for you. Start to live in it and watch as God advances his kingdom in your life. He'll do it. Jesus thought all of scripture was important. And the last thing we find this morning is that Jesus understood following rules does not save people. He understood following rules does not save people. Jesus tells the crowd, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't enter it. So we talked about this verse last week, and we shared that the word exceeds could be translated as surpasses or goes beyond. Unless we have a righteousness that goes beyond that of the Pharisees, can't enter the kingdom. And this seems like this incredible challenge. Like, man, these Pharisees were, seemed like they were these good people. I mean, good religious people. But how am I supposed to exceed their righteousness? But the, the thing is, is the Pharisees had externalized piety. That they had this box. I talked about it last week. They had this fenced-in area. We live within this area. And as long as we do that, we've secured our lives. And actually, they took it further. So there's these laws in the Old Testament. And they added laws to those laws. So they created a fence within the fence. Because we didn't want to get near that outer fence. Like, it was crazy, and that's what Jesus is constantly challenging these guys on. So this is the way that they lived. They attempted to follow religious laws, but God is after so much more. He's after your heart. God wants your heart. He wants to change us from the inside out, because that's where true freedom comes from. There's a righteousness that has to go beyond the fences. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what kingdom righteousness is. 
So Jesus is essentially saying, look, if you thought the law was tough, wait till you see this. If you really want to be my disciples, give me your hearts without reservation. But here's why. He says, because once I have your heart, you are free to live the abundant life I came to give you. That's why he wants it. But as long as you're simply trying to live within the fence, you're bearing a burden you're, we're not meant to, ca- to carry. Give it over to me. Wear my yoke. We talked about it last week. That's the one you're meant to bear. So this new righteousness that Jesus talks about, it changes our relationships with God. We talked about this. Matthews 5, 6, and 7. He says, so this righteousness, it'll change the way you interact with God, with people, and your possessions. And I want to give you one example of that this morning so you can understand what I'm saying. If you continue, so the verse we read was Matthew 5, chapter 20. So just go to verse 21. So what happens is Jesus says it's got to exceed it. And now let me share with you what I mean by that. So verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, so he's like, here's the law of Moses. But I say, and who's the only one that can unpack the law? Jesus, the son of God. But I say that everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So what does Jesus say? No anger. Are you kidding me, Jesus? I get a great deal of pleasure out of hating my boss. That guy's a jerk. My coworkers, idiots. My neighbor, he mows his lawn at 7 a.m. I hate that guy. Right? And Jesus is like, no anger. My family, don't even go there. I'm not even sure I'm from the same gene pool. Now think about the times we're living in. Jesus, person of a different race, person of a different political party. I like to be angry with them. The list could be long right now, right? And for most of us, and here's why I'm handling this one. It happened to be the verse that follows, but talk about applies to the times we're in. And I would say this, most of us would never say that out loud. We just do it. We're very careful to not let people in on our private vices. Anger, you understand, it's not always expressed openly. Anger at times is held internally, and it destroys us and our relationships with others. It's a disease. We can't kill, so we won't. And as long as I don't kill and live within the fence, God still loves me, and that's how we can operate. And Jesus shows up. Accept our righteousness. Go beyond not killing. We'll never enter the kingdom, Jesus says. Kingdom righteousness. It goes beyond the fence. And here's what I want us to consider this morning. Because look, we're living in an angry culture right now. Why are we angry with somebody, anybody, ever? Because if you get to the source, you can find the solution. There's really only one reason, and this is why this is simple this morning. There's only one. In some way or another, the individuals or individual that we're angry with, they have some kind of control over us and our kingdoms, and we can't tolerate it. Why do we get angry? Because in some way, another person has some kind of control over us and our many kingdoms, and we can't tolerate it. Anger comes out of somebody else's having some kind of control over our lives, and we don't like it. 
So here's some good liberating news this morning. You have a king and you live in God's kingdom. You don't have a kingdom to protect anymore. Be liberated by that today. It's, it's, you don't live in your own kingdom. And if you are, it's going to be a mess. You have a king and you live in a kingdom. And now when you live like that, you're free to love that other person. Because they have no control over you. Because you don't have a kingdom. And I would say this. You get to love that other person like God has loved us. And how was that, by the way? By loving us to death. Literally. By laying down his life for us. His death. And now ours. Unless someone takes up their cross and follows me. So when Jesus says, no anger, he's not trying to take something away from us that's our right. And I, I want to interject here. I know that there are feelings of anger. Scripture says to be angry and not sin. So apparently there is a kind of anger that does not have a sinful expression to it. Jesus models that for us. But anger that is a personal venting or feeling toward another human being or an action toward another person that eventually destroys that person, if possible, it's wrong. Anger directed towards somebody, wishing for their hopeful demise, it's wrong, Jesus says. It's wrong. In God's kingdom, that's not a privilege anymore because God loves that person that we're angry with just as much as he loves us. I know. I know we don't want God to love that person as much as he loves us. I mentioned it last week. I mean, who wants a God that loves his enemies as much as he loves us? Who wants a God like that? But that's the nature of the kingdom. Can I tell you this morning? Thank God you are one time an enemy. So you better be thankful that God loves his enemies. That was your entrance into the kingdom. He loved us anyway. And so out of a place of gratitude for the love that God has shown us, we love others. And I want to say, and that itself is a gift because now we don't have to be all twisted up in knots, angry with others, trying to protect our little kingdoms because now we get to live in God's kingdom. And he secures our life. If you're trying to secure your life, you're going to lose it, Jesus says. If you let God secure it, you're firm. You're grounded. Nothing's going to rattle you. To enter the kingdom of heaven is to come under God's rule, to become one of those who recognize his kingship and live by his kingdom standards, to be God's true people. Are we trying to secure our lives by living within a fence, or have we found freedom by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us beyond the fences? As a citizen in God's kingdom, learn to live beyond the fence through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing. You can't do it on your own. But Jesus died and he left so the Holy Spirit could come and now we've got it. He gives us the power to do it. We just have to walk in it. And then you'll live with your heart set free. We have a king. We live in a kingdom. God's word is our guide. Here's what Jesus is saying in our passage. I want to summarize it this morning. Do not suppose that I came to undermine the authority of the Old Testament scriptures and in particular the law of Moses. I did not come to set them aside, but to bring into reality that to which was pointing forward. I tell you truly, the law, down to its smallest details, it is as permanent as heaven and earth and will never lose its significance. 
On the contrary, all that it points forward to will in fact become a reality and is now doing so in my life and ministry. So anyone who treats even the most insignificant of the commandments of the law as of no value and teaches other people to belittle them is an unworthy representative of the new age, the age that was to come, which has arrived in Jesus and is coming still and will finally come. While anyone who takes this word seriously and word indeed will be a true member of God's kingdom. But do not imagine that simply keeping all of those rules will bring salvation. For I tell you truly, it is only those who righteousness of life goes far beyond the old policy, goes far beyond the fence of literal rule keeping, which the scribes and Pharisees represent, who will prove to be God's true people in this era of fulfillment. We've got a new covenant. We've got a new day. And we get to be people whose hearts are set free. That's what Jesus does. And that's what's crazy. Like he's trying to liberate us and we're trying to hold on in bondage. Don't do it. Let go this morning. Worship the king of kings. Let go of your anger. Let go of your pride. Let go of your lust. Like Jesus goes and unpacks all of these things then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because then you get to live as a follower of Jesus, a child of God with a heart set free. And you get to help others find that too. Kingdom living, it's about transformed living, not rule keeping. Kingdom living is about accepting the good news that God accepts us as we are. So good news today, God accepts you as you are, no matter how you come. He accepts you that way. And then we get to live a life of gratitude in response to this free gift. May you choose that today. I invite you to stand. We're going to close in song. And my prayer is you allow your heart to be set free today. As you're standing, I want to ask, maybe you're here today and you realize you really are living in bondage today, some way, somehow, but today you want to see your heart set free. The answer to that is Jesus. He's the one that comes to set you free by his Holy Spirit. But today you say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I really do want to live with my life and my heart set free. And so today you'd say, I want freedom today. I want freedom today. I want to live in the kingdom. Scripture is our authority. God's word to guide us. So with every head bowed, I just want to pray with you today if that's where you find yourself. You're here today and you'd say, I want to be set free and fully live in the kingdom of God. And I would say this, maybe for the first time you've never entered the kingdom of God or for a renewed time. You would say, I recognize I've not been really living in God's kingdom. I've been living in my own, protecting my own kingdom, and it just doesn't work. And so today, I just want to pray with you. We won't have you come to the front. We're just living in different times, and that's okay because God meets you right where you're at today. He meets you in your seat here in the sanctuary, meets you in your seat in the prayer room, meets you in the Bethel Chapel, meets you in the youth sanctuary, meets you in your home. That's the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. Hovers over the face of the earth. So, from where you're at today, if that's you, just raise your hand and I want to pray with you before we leave. Anybody say, that's me. I need to, I need to enter or re-enter the kingdom of God in a new way today. Who here today would say, that's me? That's me. Over here on the left, anybody else? Anybody else say, that's me this morning? Over here on the right, anybody else? I want to enter God's kingdom in a new way. Right up here up front, anybody else? Jesus, I pray for each and every one that raised their hand. I pray for those that responded online. I pray, Jesus, that you would set hearts free today in Jesus' name. 
Oh, may we live in that freedom, God, that good news that you came, that we can lose our life and find it in you and you secure it. So God, I pray that those that raise their hand, that they wake up tomorrow with a renewed sense of God does it. He's found my life for me. I didn't have to find it on my own. And Jesus, I pray for those that entered for the first time. I pray, Lord, that you'd give them strength and steadfastness. Lord, to even at the end of our song time, just be able to come up and that we might be able to engage them and and lead them into a relationship with another believer in Christ because we don't grow in Christ apart from others. We grow in Christ together. And so Jesus, I just pray that you would help this body come together in ways like it never has before. We pray for unity in Jesus' name. Togetherness in Jesus' name. And God, I just pray as we close in song that we would devote our lives to you and be set free by you today. In your name we pray, amen.